I've been intrigued again and again by the letters of the Apostle Paul, and they're up again in our lectionary readings, and from the first letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, last week we, we heard that powerful passage at most weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, about love, and today we're going to hear about grace. Two words that are foundational for our own understanding of who we are and whose we are, but also two words that are pretty much shop-worn and have sort of been neutered by their overuse. So let me begin by, before I read the text, asking you a question. Have you ever had something in your life happened to you that changed your whole sense of identity. It could be a tragic event or it could be something unbelievably beautiful and loving, something that reminded you that you were more heroic than you thought. Before you thought you knew who you were, but after that moment you're not quite so sure. You become someone else altogether. This happened to the Apostle Paul, as many of us know, when he was encountered by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And that energized him to become the greatest evangelist of all time, starting with churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey, in Greece, in Italy, Rome, that spread all over the world. We are here today because of his evangelism. Yet not all is well in the churches that Paul founded, just as not all is well in any church. We are churches, and in churches there are people, and where there are people there is conflict. And so Paul is hearing about this church in Corinth and the conflict that they are facing, that some preachers are coming in and telling them one thing about who they are and who Jesus is and what they're supposed to do, and other preachers are coming in and telling them something else. And in many cases, they're usurping or undermining the very message that Paul had formed the church upon. So he writes them a letter, reminding them that they have forgotten what they stand on. Hear the word as it comes to us in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, beginning with verse 1. Now I remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received. You also stand on this, through which you are also being saved. I love love that much. Being saved seems to fit my life more than been saved, because I'm in process. So Paul owns up to that. Being saved, and if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you come to believe in vain, it is for your gift. For I handed on to you of first importance what I in turn had received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, or the others. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, 
most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles. Then last of all, as one untimely born, the actual Greek word is one who has been miscarried, one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am who I am, what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. By the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul proclaims. And so we ask, who was he? At one point, he was one of the chief persecutors of Christian faith. He was a religious zealot, an observer, an obsessive observer and keeper of the Jewish law. He was obedient and faithful and righteous, and he stood out as one of their best people. Nobody ever wore a yarmulke like Paul. When it came to keeping score, he was always one up. He had a 5.0 grade average in the graduate school of religious obedience. Yet a bucket load of judgment and persecution always went along with him. As far as identity, he had no conflicts. There was no self-conflict. He had no problem knowing who he was. He was rock solid in his faith and in his righteousness. His self-identity was set until, ah, until something earth-shattering broke into him and changed his life and self-identity forever. And what it was was the resurrected presence of Christ when he called Paul by name and in some mysterious way presented his face face to Paul. And what happened then was he was broken to his very core. It broke him. It broke him. This day he comes face to face with the risen Christ this Christ that encounters him just walking along a road doing his business getting ready to collect another Sunday school pen for persecuting Christians. And this resurrected Christ breaks in on his life and knocks him to his knees. And in that moment, you see, Paul had that face of Christ mirroring back to him who he really was at his core. That real sense of Paul that he tried to hide from everybody, not the pretense of Paul, but that real sense of Paul and that dark judgment criticalness reflected back to him in this amazing face of Jesus Christ like mirror neurons reflected back from the face of a mother to her child. And he saw himself as if looking in a mirror, his true self, his true hyper-religious self, his true 
uber-righteousness, and it gave him a complete knockdown. And it took away his whole sense of identity, his superiority to everyone else. He faced the persecution and torment of everyone else in his own moment, seeing that he was the one who was deeply tormented, only projecting that torment onto everybody else. And in this moment of face-to-faceness with Jesus, not only does he see him, his own self, the self that Jesus sees in us, he also saw the face of God. He saw the face of God, the incredible light and shining love of God beaming down on him while he's on his knees, crying so hard that stuff's coming out of his nose and his mouth and his eyes, and he's just head down on the road, and he looks up, and there he sees not only himself, but the love and grace of God in the face of Jesus. And what, did he, and what did he see when he saw that face? Forgiveness and love and embrace. And then it happened. He was convicted by the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. He was humiliated. He was shamed as he saw himself. And no sooner was he humiliated and shamed than the loving arms of God reached down and lifted him up out of that dusty road and put him back on his feet. This is what we stand on, Paul says to the church at Corinth. And what that is, is twofold. The love of God made real through Jesus Christ a love that made itself so real it was willing to suffer even unto a cross. And the power of God not to let suffering and death and a cross have the last word, but resurrects all that into new life. How does that happen? We've been told most of our Christian life that, well, you know, it happened because... God is just and we're sinful and because we're sinful we can't make an adequate sacrifice to pay off our sins and so God sends Jesus Christ as a substitution to satisfy God's need for sacrifice. If you've heard anything I've said the last 14 years it is this. I think that is the opposite of grace. That is just more prid quo pro. That is just more scorekeeping. That is just more balance sheet work. God has to balance the sheet, yet we can't do it. So God sends Jesus to do it for us. And I want you to understand that while that may be the majority of what we've been taught in our lives, I think that there is a bigger and better truth to it. And it is this. We're the ones who keep score. We're the ones who keep the grudges. We're the ones who balance the sheet. We always do it. We're human beings that keep score. And because we keep score, Jesus ends up being the gift, the promise, the absolution that the score 
has been forgiven for our sakes. We demand it. Someone offends you. They may say something ugly. They may do something bad. They may gossip about you. Someone offends you and, you know, you keep score and you think, well, I thought they were my friend, but they're not my friend anymore unless they apologize to me. If they come and ask forgiveness, I'll forgive them and maybe we can come back together, be reconciled. That's scorekeeping, right? Unless we receive an apology and forgiveness, it's not going to happen. But in the story we have here, in our willfulness not to love God in return for God's love, it is God who has been offended, who has his heart broken, And if we follow that same scorekeeping way, then it is we who must go to God and apologize. But what the story tells us is that it is God, the very one who was offended, who comes to us and makes the offering of love. It would be like you going to your friend and saying, I love you. I miss you. Let's reconcile. And not waiting for the apology. This is the act of God in Jesus Christ. Following us, chasing us, coming to us wherever we are. Only wanting to relieve us of this incredible burden of not measuring up to God's standard of love. And willing to do whatever it takes to convince us that we are loved and forgiven. It's called grace. It's called grace. It means being given something that we don't deserve. It means breaking all the scorekeeping systems in the world. It means giving something away you're never going to get something back with. The image of this moment for Paul is the image for all of us when we come close enough to the face of Christ, when we see ourselves as God sees us, when we see in the face of Christ God's face, if we're willing to look in the mirror long enough for that, the image of that is, can God really love me? Can God love me knowing what's in my heart? Knowing what goes through my mind in traffic or anywhere else? This moment of encounter you see is the one thing that will change our whole sense of identity from being not measuring up to being lifted up on a stand of unbelievable presence. It's what frees us from the guilt and the bondage It's what helps us become truly who we are created to be in the image of God. This is all about grace, and it comes to us like it did to Paul, wherever we may be at any particular time. Just look out and be careful, because if it comes, and if you put yourself in the place of it to come, and if you start asking for it to come, you're not going to be the same person after it comes. And I'm going to tell you something else. It's not going to come just once, because... I've needed it at least 50,000 times. It comes once, and I say, oh, yeah, I get it again, and then I forget. We leak, 
And it keeps coming over and over again. It comes to us no matter where we are. It comes to us where we're in the darkest place we've ever been, this face of Jesus. All we need to do is be looking for it. Ah, I see it. And when it comes to us, we see ourselves in a humiliation while at the same time getting rid of the very humiliation itself and being clothed with the incredible love of God that owns us as God's child. When it happens, you can do one of three things. You can choose to spin it. We have several options. The first is you can deny it, like the governor of Virginia, thinking even though the shoe polish is out of the can, so to speak, we can go on with business as usual. It's the flight response in the fight or flight reaction. Or we can fight back on Twitter, say, slandering and blaming our accusers of even more evil things. It's the fight response instead of the flight response. But now there's a third option, and that's to surrender. We don't like that word, surrender. But that's the third option. We own it. And it's usually the last choice we make because we don't really want the consequences. Somebody really sees who we are and we don't want to be knocked to our knees in humiliation and shame and we don't want to be exposed to the whole world around us. But there is no understanding of God's love and grace unless we are willing to surrender in that way. I can tell you that because otherwise we have done it for ourselves. And what we will receive when that happens from our creator God is not judgment and not anger, but love, embrace, grace. Which is probably the reason we avoid the encounter. Because if you've ever been loved that way, when I wrecked my father's car when I was 16, I just had the license. It was by accident. Of course it's by accident. It was my father's company car. He let me take my brother to the football uh, practice. I'm just running over a stop sign sitting in the middle of a driveway. I never saw it. I'm looking down the field for where the practice is. Bends the bumper. I can't pull it back out. I am scared to death. I drive back after practice. My father's in his office. He comes out and I am convinced he is going to take a toll on me. And when I said to him, Dad, I think I I, I wrecked the car. And he looks at the bumper and he looks at me and he says, are you okay? No judgment. Just love. Just embrace. And it broke me. I cried on his shoulder like I was three years old because of his grace. This is the power of grace. This is what is for us always. This is why we come to church. Why we come here is to be reminded, as Paul said, what we stand on. The power of God's love and the crucifixion and the power of God not to let death have the last word. And it happens all over the place, not just Paul. My favorite, I know, I don't have time for this, 
Listen to Les Miserables again and see if it's not about this story with Jean Valjean who receives not one candlestick but two and in receiving it he proclaims one word from him and I be back beneath the lash upon the rack instead he offers me my freedom. I feel shame inside me like a knife. I am reaching but I fall and the night is closing in and I stare into the void to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. He is a new person. It was true for John Newton who wrote the song on the ship when he prayed for God's mercy. He didn't immediately quit selling slaves, by the way, but he was nicer to them for a few years. God had to keep working on him. Finally, when he went into ministry, he saw who he had really been. The consequences of sin are death. And as long as we remain in sin, we are the ones who die. We are walking wounded. With the power of God in Jesus Christ to release us and remove us from our sins is made real through the unbelievable act of love on the cross. Not for God's sake. For yours and mine. This is what we stand on. Amen.